Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet this evening the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, as we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. A very warm welcome to this Sydney Ideas event for the Education and Social Work Dean's Lecture Series. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Fran Moore and I have the honour and privilege of being in the Head of School and Dean role in the Sydney School of Education and Social Work. And a special thanks to my colleagues in the Centre for Research on Learning and Innovation, known as CRIMI, within our school and across the university for your passion and commitment to innovation in education and your collegiality, especially in sharing your vast research networks and partnerships and relationships. These connect and challenge us and tonight expose us to rich learning opportunities, such as the presentation this evening with our renowned speaker, Professor Roger Soldier from the University of Gothenburg. Roger specialises in research on learning interaction and human development in a socio-cultural perspective where he has published extensively and much of his work relates to issues of how people learn to use cultural tools and how we acquire competencies and skills that are foundational to learning in a socially and technologically complex society. Roger is one of the founding editors of the journal Learning, Culture and Social Interactions and he has supervised actually 50 students, PhD students and of course they're around the world in different positions. And if we um, run out of things to say, Roger's going to give us a rundown on where the 50 of them are. But I think in terms of tonight, I realise it's the 14th of February and while people are celebrating Valentine's Day as such. There might be work-life balance issues tonight, so I have great pleasure in handing the microphone over to Roger, and he's presenting his ideas on learning as design and performative action, symbolic technologies and challenges for education in digital societies. So thank you. Could you a warm welcome to Roger. Thank you very much for this uh, introduction. It's a great pleasure for me uh, to be here. I, I don't remember uh, all the 50 students, but I remember the two most recent ones because they were just a month ago. Uh, of course, I know them and follow them, but I, I couldn't give a summary of their work right now. It's a great pleasure for me to be invited to give a lecture at this, uh, on this occasion, the Sydney Ideas and uh, also for me to reconnect with people that I've known for a long time, uh, even before they came here, like Professor Peter Goodyear, whom I met when he had his previous life in, in uh, Europe, in England, and I've made some new friends here, uh, 
which is always very nice. We've had some good seminars here during my time. And of course, it's also a good time to go here because the weather is definitely much better here than it is in Gothenburg, I can tell you. Uh, so uh, I will, uh, I've chosen this rather cryptic title. Uh, I'm going to give a very brief introduction on my background is two slides, but just to situate myself so you know the position I'm speaking uh, from. And uh, let's see here. Yeah, I represent two research units within my university. One is a research center interested in the more general trends in the development of media. And another one, this one is called the Linnaeus Center. And the other one is a more uh, hands-on, experimental and interdisciplinary activity called the Let's Studio, which is led by a colleague of mine, Professor Osa Mekitali. And we do work of this kind, a multidisciplinary <coughs> environment of studying the impact of digitization and the transformation of practices, work practices, health practices, uh, school practices, and so on, uh, in the wake of uh, sort of the push from, from uh, digital tools as they come into this activity. Uh, and some of this is very, very specialized, takes place in very sort of specific corners of society, so I'm not going to talk about them. Then I'm still, I'm go uh, instead, I'm going to put on my educationist cap of tonight and give a somewhat broader discussion of the impact and the transformations that we are now going through, uh, as I see them, in terms of the uh, impact of a new technology. And I'm going to take three... Uh, time periods. Actually, there will be four, but the major talk is, is grounded on an argument that we can see three different, we can see three dramatic changes in the history when it comes to the transformation of, of uh, how we reproduce knowledge in society. One of them took place 5,000 years ago, another one 500 years ago, and another one we are living through right now as we speak. Uh, and we'll see if you agree with me. But the background for this is that all societies then have a, a need to reproduce the knowledge, the skills, the values, the identities of members and communities. If you put that differently, they have a, the role of education is to maintain and maybe also uh, change or, or improve the social or cultural memory of a society. So that's uh, another way of putting the same thing. And um, the central context in which these processes take place are, first of all, in everyday city settings, like in family life, in mundane, ordinary activities where knowledge is transferred to new generations, in work settings, and in all kinds of practices. Uh, then we also have institutional settings uh, which were created then uh, for the specific purpose of uh, reproducing and developing uh, the cultural memory and knowledge. Those would be schools, preschools, universities, adult educational institutions, and, and so on. And uh, these uh, settings have grown tremendously, uh, especially since uh, the uh, mid-19th century. And uh, uh, the, uh, it's actually parallel with industrialization, which is not surprising. I'll say a few words about that later. Uh, and th these uh, institutions now have expanded both in terms of towards the upper age levels, towards more people going to universities, 
but also towards the lower levels. So we are seeing across the world systems of preschool being introduced, which prolong uh, together, this prolongs the educational period. So actually in my country, if you count the number of hours that uh, students do from, uh, not, not preschool, but from primary, secondary, uh, upper secondary, university, adult education and so on, about every third working hour or even a bit more than that is taking place in an educational institution where, where there are students and uh, teachers. So this is an enormous transformation of uh, society that has been taking place uh, over the past 150 years and especially after the Second World War. What characterizes these settings then is that they are not only institutions for learning, teaching and learning, but they also operate on the basis of a curriculum. That is, there are specific uh, responsibilities and, and uh, ways of organizing teaching and uh, institutional accountabilities. And where you, where you have curricula, you will always find educational instruction ideologies, that is, ideas about how education should be organized that you don't, will not find uh, in, in many other settings, which are also important in everyday, but they are not based on the curricular concept of learning. Um, in societies, if we take these two settings as very general categories, uh, which are traditional and have a low division of labor, as sociologists say, uh, this implies that the, they, they reproduce a stable cultural memory uh, the experiences and knowledge and insights of the adults of the established generations are sufficient and relevant for new generations. Uh, there's a limited division of labor in terms of professions and, and uh, so on, stable production systems. And this implies that the, much of the knowledge and skills can be rep reproduced in daily life as part of participation in ongoing practices in what you can call modern societies, but it's better to call it complex societies because modern society is a very strange term uh, to use. Uh, the conditions for reproducing the cultural memory are very different. Uh, for instance, the way in which we organize our daily lives change, the ways in which we communicate, and they may be modified rather quickly as we experienced during the past decades. And there's a rapid growth of knowledge uh, which results in changes uh, both in education production and in professional uh, competences and activities. We see, for instance, uh, uh, an increasing specialization in professions, uh, where, where, uh, which is the response of the system to this increasing knowledge, that everybody gets sort of a, a narrow line of, of competences that they develop and that they're responsible for. And in such settings, we also see that institutional forms of education become longer. They are prolonged, more extended. And that's also what we have seen, uh, since, particularly since after the Second World War. Uh, and in such, what is interesting from, from my perspective then, in, that in such situations, and I, of course I'm arguing that we are in such a situation now, and we have been for some time, uh, education is caught in the dilemma when knowledge is expanding and, and growing quickly, education cannot adapt to all these new uh, ideas and inventions and insights. Uh, that, that's impossible. You can't, can't run after all these uh, novelties. And in such a situation, the reaction in society in the more wider 
political debate or social debate. There will be one line of argumentations, argumentation that will look backwards and say that we should uh, preserve the strategies that worked when I was a student, and which was a much better time, and uh, when everything worked well. And uh, this is typified very much by the American Back to Basic movement, which began in the 1960s or 70s, and of course uh, um, tried to argue that we should reinstall education as it was from reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, there's another line of argumentation where you are in this uh, situation, where people try to look forwards and attempt to uh, anticipate what skills, what types of knowledge will be relevant for the future. And what is it that is generative about all these knowledge that is being produced? And can we focus that? Can we sift that out and try to teach that? instead of trying to uh, keep up with all the changes. So are there basic new concepts for teaching and learning? We should organize education, instruction, and learning accordingly. So in this uh, sort of struggle between returning to the past and trying to look ahead, we, we find uh, an educational debate uh, which oscillates between different positions. And I think we, it'll be like that for a long time now, because that's the position we're in. Um, at another level, what causes changes in educational uh, ambitions are, of course, not mechanical. They rely on, depend on, grow out of uh, political ideas. For instance, what is education good for? What is the role of citizenship? Uh, what are the labor market expectations which politi politicians worry about and think they have a clear idea about? And I wonder if they do, because nobody knows what the labor market will be like tomorrow. Uh, we have social challenges in all societies. We have issues of uh, international competition. We have problems of equity and inclusion and uh, other issues. And we have technological changes in society which force education to uh, take a stand and to adapt and to sort of interpret what those technological changes will mean for education, what the implications are for that. And here's also a a situation where educational ideals play in, educational philosophies uh, play in when you evaluate them. And I have italicized that because that is what I'm going to emphasize today. And But I realize that I do that against the background that there are also political and social challenges that I will not address. Uh, humans change their societies through technologies. Technologies represent our signs of our capacity to learn. We are the only species that can take an idea and convert it into a technology. And then we can live with the technology. And we have no idea where that came from. We have no idea how this, the, the, all the work that was put into this is simply there for us to use and uh, avail ourselves of. Um, there's a special kind of uh, technology that interests me. And uh, I call them symbolic technology uh, uh, technologies. And that phrase is taken from the evolutionary psychologist Merlin Donald, who calls them symbolic technologies. If you have a psychological uh, background, Vygotsky, uh, the Russian uh, educationist and psychologist, they would call them cultural tools. But I think symbolic technologies are, are, uh, is a good expression for this. And they are uh, ways of representing and uh, communicating knowledge here uh, in, in uh, 
in various ways. I'll come back to the symbolic technologies, but they play an enormous role to the transformation of society. Uh, we commit our knowledge to, to uh, uh, documents of this kind, as I will come back to. Uh, uh, these technologies undergo changes, and now we are seeing such dramatic changes. And the interesting, one interesting aspect of the current changes that we see is that uh, this technology, we have many technological changes, but this technology penetrates almost all spheres of life and all activities. It's not a limited technology that has just one kind of impact. It affects our, uh, the way we live our lives, affects uh, how we communicate, maintain social relationships, it changes our workplaces and so on. And this is digitization, uh, which is the focus of my interest. And um, we need to be educated to cope with these technologies then. Because we think, and when we learn, and when we develop skills of various kind, we take detours, we rely on these technologies. When we count, we use a calculator or an abacus if we live in another world. When we write, we use a typewriter or a computer. Uh, so our thinking is sort of dependent, our education, our knowledge is dependent on this technological development. And people have to be updated so that they can adapt to situations where new technologies come in. I, uh, my point, again, I borrowed from Merlin Donald the expression that we are a hybrid mind. We do some things here between our heads, but for most activity, activities, we also rely on external support. We rely on various technologies. And of course, then an educational issue is that we have to be uh, familiar with those technologies and man be able to manage them and use them practically in different situations. Uh, if we accept this view that the human mind, or the, even the human brain, is, is uh, a hybrid. Uh, it, this implies that uh, changes in symbolic technologies, as I say, will have an impact on how we think and how we reason. And just two very concrete examples of that. Uh, uh, for instance, the introduction of texts, which I will come back to, that changed our need for remembering. Texts are perfect resources for remembering. We don't have to think between our heads. Instead, we have to learn how to interpret and read text and so on. And if we want to multiply, if we should want to multiply 865,23 by 173,14, uh, it, it, we can do it in different ways. We can try mental calculation. I've persuaded people to do that and they become very upset and angry <laughs> because they can't do it. Very few people can manage this and it takes hours. Uh, we can do paper and pencil. That works much better, but it's not perfect. We can use a slide rule, and that doesn't work anymore. If we would have had this audience 50 years ago, half of you would have been able to use a slide rule, but that has gone out of business. Uh, if you use a digital calculator, it's trivial. And there will be very few of you who have made mistakes in this of this kind. And the reason is that we've outsourced the algorithmic part of this work. We still have to know what it means to do multiplication, but the uh, sort of details and the actual processing of that we have outsourced to, to uh, uh, an external support for our thinking. So uh, symbolic technologies then play a great role for people and for all of us. Because through them we get to know much of the world that we do not have direct experience of. They always have a material dimension. They always have 
material existence. They rely on inscriptions, for instance, letters or numbers or those kinds of systems I'll show you. And they are part of what we can call documentary practices, that is practices that make it possible for us to build up uh, knowledge. And uh, in order to interpret these then docu uh, documents, we have to be familiar with how to read them, how to uh, practices of meaning making, as I put it uh, here. And in our time, these technologies are, these symbolic technologies are restless. They're always changing. There are innovations all the time. I'm sure that many of you work in your offices, you get your uh, software upgraded every now and then. <coughs> you get annoyed, and uh, but it, this reflects the fact that it, this is a restless technology. Previously, for instance, writing was very stable. It didn't change very much. It was paper and pencil and looking at and all symbolic technologies presuppose the use of uh, or the existence of interpretive communities. There have to be communities that know how to interpret and work with these symbolic technologies. And in some cases, these uh, symbolic technologies are uh, the interpretive community is the entire society. I think everybody above the age of five or six or something can read this. They're familiar with that time measuring. Uh, there I have the slide rule. Very, very few of you can use that. Maybe one or two people, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and this rune stone, no, no one of you can read, I'm sure. Maybe someone. Actually, you can now because there's a program that translates rune stones, uh, the writing, into alphabetic writing. But, uh, and here you have a, a symbolic technology, which is music. And I, I would guess that about 10 to 15% of you know what this piece of music is. Everybody knows what it is, but because I've been so nasty as to take away the composer and the title, only those who are familiar with this co code, who belong to this interpretive community, know what this is. So what is it? Pluralese, yeah, from, from Beethoven. So this is the idea of interpretive communities, that all these symbolic technologies rely on interpretive communities. They can be big or they can be small. They can be broad or they can be narrow. Uh, the technology which has meant most for the, uh, which is very, very important for our uh, production and reproduction of knowledge is the symbolic technology of literacy and those associated with writing and so on. So if we take spoken language as the first mechanism, the first symbolic technology, writing is certainly the second really great big invention in human history. And, and uh, in ri through writing you can both commit ideas, experiences, and, and sort of put them, store them here, and you can also re reproduce them. You can take them out and bring them out into the open again. And uh, literacy and text and the cultural memory then uh, <coughs> played together and have shaped our culture in many, many sectors of society. Here we can document human experiences. We do, and we do that by converting our experiences into information. Because when they end up as text, they're information, and they become knowledge when we take them out of that again and use them. Uh, texts are unlimited in their capacity, uh, unlike the human memory, which has obvious, obvious limitations. But uh, texts are unlimited. If you have written one book, you can write another one. If you have written one letter, you can write another one. And, uh, but the catch with that, then, is that the use of this particular symbolic technology requires training. Uh, socialization requires that we shape the minds of users 
so that they can uh, interact with these uh, documents there. And here is the second, this is where I take you 5,000 years back in, uh, in history because this is the origin of writing in the modern sense in, in our Western tradition. This is uh, so-called cuneiform writing. And uh, what is interesting about this is that if you look at it, uh, it doesn't mean anything. You could sit here for a week and not become any wiser because here you need someone to tell you what it looks like, what it means, what, it, what is shown up there. So you need a, a, a teacher. And this was also the technology that brought us education uh, and brought us the activity of studying. And the activity of studying is a revolution in the reproduction of, uh, of the social memory. It's an enormously powerful mechanism. The fact that you sort of put uh, efforts into reproducing parts of the cultural memory. And this is actually a school uh, which has, is about 5,000 years old. It was existed in southern uh, what is now Iran, uh, Iraq, sorry, around the, these old city-states where this technology uh, emerged as a mechanism for solving problems in society, for documenting and for recording and so on. Uh, so the introduction of such symbolic technologies then resulted in the development of what I call document societies. That is where we document things. We have uh, laws, we have receipts, we have agreements, we have all kinds of uh, documents where, where we can accumulate information and, and knowledge. And when document societies appear, uh, you will also have to equip people with the necessary cognitive skills for interpreting that. And this is what they did in this situation. This was a, the so-called scribal school where um, uh, students were sitting all day in the heat and, and training to copy texts, basically from, from masters, teachers. Uh, and, and this is the first example in history of a systematic training of the human mind, systematic educational sort of activity to shape the minds of people so that they could operate with these uh, strange uh, written texts. And uh, this is the 500 years ago, uh, which is a revolution again, which is the book printing in uh, discovered or, yeah, discovered or, or designed in, in around 1450, 1460 in, in Germany. And uh, uh, the, this builds on the written technology, but this then released power of literacy in, in, uh, in, in Europe in the sense that uh, books became affordable, books could be distributed, uh, previously all books had been handwritten and of course that was terribly expensive. So if you look at this you can say that this relatively simple uh, innovation which was then the movable type, you could print before this, printing was not a problem, but the movable type was the innovation. So you can print and then you can you know, take it all apart and put them together again and print again. And this was a, an innovation. And this technology, you could say, coupled with certain ideologies and so on, became the origin of, of uh, education uh, in Europe. Uh, the uh, birth of mass education, the spread of books, the spread of texts, it's exerted a pressure on societies. Uh, they had to take a decision whether 
how to use this, this, the power of this technology and whether to institute and make people literate or whether not to do that. And actually different parts of Europe took different decisions initially and especially the Protestant part, the northern part and the northwestern part of Europe became uh, literate fairly quickly. But with some exaggeration you can say that it was this little invention that actually produced mass education. Uh, and this, so societies had to respond to this development in some sense. And one of the responses that I think uh, was to train people to read in order to, uh, well, they had were different motives, political motives, but it was also part of the building of nation states and the establishment of national identities in, in certain parts of the world. An interesting fact or an interesting dimension of this uh, introduction of, uh, of uh, mass education then was that which took place, started late 18th century and essentially was finished by the mid or late 19th century uh, in Europe, was that there was a, an apparent institutional continuity. The concept of schooling, the ideas of uh, uh, how to organize schooling stayed the same. So even though the sort of the, the students became much more diverse and, and very different backgrounds from the previous systems, uh, you had small groups, elites participating in education. The, the very concept of education stayed the same. The institution was sort of safeguarded its practices against any major influences from above. We kept the roles of teachers and pupils, subjects, the various disciplines classrooms, lecturing, tests, break, punishment. There was also various different theories which has been abandoned in many countries now. But uh, uh, this was a situation as my colleague Ruth Lindgren has, has analyzed very clearly where schools had control over what students had to learn. So in order to, to learn, you had to go to school. There was no other place to learn this. And schools had, a, had sort of a... a control of the novelties, control of the skills that they could uh, offer to, to students. Learning continued to be heavily focused on reproduction. This uh, was generally not a place of free thinking or critical thinking, but it reproduction was, was known. And the locus of knowledge and skills was the individual. That was maintained. And this is a very powerful idea that we are struggling with right now. The fact that we maintain this orientation, and I will show you this image, which is the outcome of, of uh, which is the, the sign of this way of thinking, namely that when you take tests in education, it's you and the paper and pencil that count. It's, uh, and here you see they put put on these uh, shutters so as not to look at some what what somebody else is doing. And this idea that knowledge is rests within the individual, inside very powerful and continues to dominate the deep uh, debate. I'll come back to that in a few words. Um, so turning to modern times, uh, our time, uh, it's legitimate, given this historical perspective, it's legitimate to ask, I think, questions about what are the implications of what we are seeing now? How are the, how is education as a human practice uh, dealing with the problem of the fact that we are going digital? It's very difficult to be to say something about the future, uh, as I said. And uh, people who are arguing for uh, an educational climate where we try to 
you know, you need to change education. They, they are sometimes have difficulties in explaining what, what the future will be like. But I, may, I will make one prediction, and it is that the future will be digital. That is, there is no backing out of this. There's no way we can return from this. Uh, there will be new, new technologies, new innovations, but they will build on uh, the digital technology. So we'll see if we live long enough, we can tell you if I was right or wrong. Um, but as I said, the, the, pre the print technology, the book printing, built on a tradition of documenting things where we, uh, where we documented uh, uh, information. We, we took our knowledge and experiences and put them in books and they became information. And when you could read them, you could take it out and rela relate to it and use it. Uh, but the ex the, what we put in books has sort of a, a status of being information. What we see now in the digital uh, time is a, is a complementary process or an additional process. We still have that process. We still write texts and document things in that way. That is a, co a continuation of that. But we also see a, a, an increasing extent of externalization and the evolution of tools that actually uh, take over the human thought processes and mimic or complement the human thought processes. And these are all the familiar things that you see today. I won't go into them in details, but they are things that we adapt to and that we have learned to adapt to. And they mostly work, although we were trying to organize this just before the lecture, it didn't work completely, uh, which is also a famous exp uh, frequent experience, but which is a great learning opportunity. Maybe not at the beginning of a session like this, but in general, that is when you learn about these technologies. But we have... Uh, automatized systems that manipulate and analyze information uh, for us to a great extent. And that, of course, raises the level of uh, uh, literacy requirements. It raises the, the expectations of what people can do, especially if we are thinking in terms of mass literacy. It's always easy to educate a small elite. If you educate 5% of the population, you can teach them anything. 10% is not that difficult either. 50% it begins to get a bit difficult, and with 100% that is a major challenge for society. And that's why we have prolonged education in the way we have, and we are still struggling to achieve the goals we want to achieve. Uh, I said I would take you back to 5,000 years, but I couldn't resist showing this picture because it's actually 55,000 years old. And this is the first symbolic uh, technology in the history of it's a, uh, I should say, it's the oldest sign of a symbolic technology that we have found, that archaeologists have found up to now. Because archaeology operates in a way, you know, they dig, and when they have dig it, uh, they finish with one layer, they start with the next layer, and then they find something which is even older than what they found before. But this is, uh, it, it really made me, uh, when I read this article, I, I had a divine experience, I must say, because it's a, uh, these are, what you see here on the right are the, it's an explanation or, or a clarification of what is shown there. So these are signs uh, that were made on, on uh, oyster shells, and they come from South Africa, and they are 55,000 years old. And you may speculate, why did people do this? This is not a, something you can operate with. This has a symbolic element to it. And what did this symbolic, what was the idea behind this symbol, symbolism? 
Well, we don't know because the interpretive community is not there anymore. Because they lost the history. But we can guess. And one guess is that this was uh, on oyster shells. Uh, was put in, they were put in caves and they were presumably full of water. They were saving water. And this was a way of marking what shell belonged to whom or to which group of uh, people. But that's just a guess, or it's an informed guess, but it's just a guess. But the thing is that all symbols, all symbolic technologies always have a motive, as Günther Kress puts it. Uh, there's always something that you want to communicate. And as scholars, we can always ask, so why did they produce these? What was its point in that? Thank you. And this is 55,000 years later. Uh, symbolic technologies, uh, children the age of one, one and a half, two, interacting with inscriptions and symbols that have this long history behind them. And between these, during these periods, we have seen shifts and changes, of course, in, in these technologies in, in very many ways. And I thought I would just uh, uh, give you a brief uh, uh, summary of what has happened, because the point here is that we are now undergoing very dramatic changes. And we are creating worlds for children which we have never had before. And from the point of view of developmental psychology, I think this is interesting. There is an institute in Sweden called .se, and they do benchmarking of internet use together with all kinds of international agencies. I'm sure Australia is involved. Uh, and they, one of the benchmarks they have is they have they operate with is uh, they have a 50% benchmark that when 50% of young people, but also of adults and even now people who are elderly people, when they use a certain kind of technology. They document that and, and look at groups and through uh, compare societies and social strata and so on. And here you can see uh, uh, what has happened in, in uh, Sweden, which is a fairly, uh, uh, where has a, had a very positive attitude to digitalization. And the schools and preschools are fully on tablet and computers and politicians have chipped in lots of resources for this. So the attitudes have been positive. In uh, the year 2000, uh, this benchmark, uh, that is the, when 50% of, of uh, young, young people used um, internet, the, the was 14 years old. So those over 14 years, there were more than 50% and under 14 years, there were less. In 2004, this 50% mark had gone down to nine years of age. In 2011, uh, it was down to three-year-olds, so 50% of the three-year-olds were active on the internet. And in 2014, over 50% of the two-year-olds, 75% of the three-year-olds, and well over 90% of the seven-year-olds were active on the internet on their own. This is the measure. They sit on their own, uh, what they use. Uh, and in 2015, uh, two-thirds of all the two-year-olds were active on the internet on their own. That's 35% everybody. And this is a situation we have never had before. We never had that childhood before in, in, uh, in the world. And here I've uh, just taken out a few to demonstrate. I won't uh, uh, go into them into detail. They were in Swedish. This report is in, in English also, but I couldn't find the English version, so it's a bit messy. But uh, you can see here, for instance, if you look at the two-year-olds uh, over there, you can see that there were... 45% who were active on the internet in uh, 2013. 
And by 2017, it's up to almost 80% that are active on the internet on their own. And you can see that the curve is growing. And when you come to the six-year-olds, you have almost reached the entire uh, group, the entire cohort. And there are not many activities in society. I mean, if you ask the people engaged in sports or whatever they do, where you reach that sort of penetration of an activity, means that virtually uh, the whole country is involved in this. And there are very few, for instance, social differences in this respect. Uh, here, is the, uh, here are the same figures for the daily use of internet. So you can look at two to three euros here. There. I don't know why they merged them, but here they were. So you see that, uh, for instance, in 2013, there was something like 16%. And in 2017, four years later, it's almost 50% of the two to three year olds who are on the internet every day on their own. And uh, this raises all kinds of questions about socialization and, and skills and so on. I won't go into that. When you come up to the 10 and 11 years old, they're all involved in this. It means there's uh, uh, no discrimination anymore uh, in that sense. And here you have. Uh, the use of educational apps, which is another one of the indicators they have. And you see that already at the age of two or three, children use educational apps. These are typically apps for, for um, where you play games with the letters or numbers or, or things like that. Uh, and it's quite interesting. I think I have that on the next, yeah. You have a, so you can look at this development there which has been taking place in the past 10 years. I'll come back to that because there is a technological explanation for this too. Where you are at the entry level at two years, actually down to one and a half years now, the, the next report will go down to that. You watch television, you watch video clips, you play simple games, listen to music, and you have engaged with some of these educational apps. Uh, when you come up to, to preschool level or the school level, age six, you begin to send pictures, you begin to write text messages, you begin to chat, and some get the first contact with social networks or social media. And then by the age of 11, you find that 80% of the young people are active on social networking sites and social media. <coughs> that would be uh, the big social network sites um, that we uh, see Facebook and, and similar. So here, there is no curriculum here. There's no official curriculum, but there is an indirect action and a tremendous support for certain types of, of uh, activities, but of course also generates lots of problems, as you all know. Um, what we see here then, I would describe as the transforma transformation of cognitive habits of very young children. Children learn to write by using keyboards, Many two-year-olds can uh, know the code of their uh, uh, tablet or the parent's mobile phone. They have no idea what numbers, no idea what numbers or letters are, but they can interact with them in a, in a more intuitive way. Writing is supported by various kinds of resources, spell checks, grammar, software, and, and other resources. Translation is supported by software, which is very important in Sweden, where children begin to learn English at a very early age. Um, children get experts at looking at the green and the red underlinings in order to recognize whether they're on the right track or not. 
whether they are spelling or, or trying to express something. And then we have a big uh, change which has come uh, over the past seven or eight years, nine maybe. It's the app, the world of apps. Uh, you go to Google and you see that there are almost three million apps that you can download. Many of them are, ge are geared towards children. Many of them uh, are, game, uh, are, are about games and gaming and so on. And they then serve as uh, what I call access points to um, symbolic experiences. In order to use an app, you don't have to read and write normally. You can push the button or the screen and you get into a, a virtual world where you can play or, or uh, do other things. And the, the use of uh, search engines, Googling, which has totally transformed our information seeking habits, uh, also for adults, but frequently used by children. And this has become a part of their intellectual makeup to turn to these systems and, and look for information and, and, uh, and so on. And uh, what are the consequences of this digitization? And if you look at the penetration of young uh, children, school, law school. Well, we, I come back to this, that schools have lost control over many elements of, of the knowledge and experiences and how they're introduced to, to children. Children, when they come to school, have already said, seen X numbers of films about uh, the, the lions on the savannah. When you came to school 100 years ago in Sweden and learned geography for the first time, and you were suddenly checked about something called Africa. That was, for many children, a revelation, something they never heard of before. Um, but here schools have lost the control over this cultural memory. Uh, there's an increasing reliance on such external tools, not just by children, but also among adults. We have new access points to the cultural memory. We have changing learning trajectories, as I said. We learn to write through the keyboard before we learn to write by hand. And you will see how long handwriting will remain a an object of, or a goal of, of schooling uh, isn't used very much. And the important thing, or the interesting thing here, here is that we now have generations of children that come into school with established habits of engaging with information and symbolic technologies. They are adapted to uh, uh, these digital technologies when they, come, when they come to school. So the interesting thing is how, how, how will schools pick up habits? What will be the interface between this new generation of digital natives as they're called in the literature and schooling? Uh, and that we are experiencing right now. Uh, and actually we had a, in Europe, we had a, a decision taken on this a few weeks ago when President Macron decided that uh, mobile phones would not be allowed in schools, actually trying to pass a law forbidding mobile phones in school, which would be completely unthinkable in Sweden. I think it would be an infringement of the personal freedom. I don't know if he managed in France, but uh, this is one reaction. So we don't want that in here. And of course, in the long run, this is not possible. It's not possible to keep a mobile phone out of such a large institution. Um, another dimension of this is that an increasing number of hours spent on the internet by young people but uh, about between six and seven hours for a Swedish 10-year-old is spent every day on media. Uh, this, is, this does not mean that the traditional media consumption has gone up dramatically. It has gone up. 
but what is what is not so frequent anymore is traditional TV consumption. That is when you sit with your family and watch a program which is aired at eight o'clock or nine o'clock or something, and you watch it together. That's what's disappearing. Uh, they may very well look at the same program, but they often do it on their own in front. Uh, they may look at it in, in some kind of they sit with their computer and so on. Uh, what is happening to reading? That is a big issue. It depends on what you mean by reading and, and so on. What is the role of reading, for instance, uh, longer pieces of text like novels and so on in this situation? That is not entirely clear. Uh, it's a mixed picture. For instance, in Sweden, the uh, book sales are not going down dramatically. Uh, and, and if you then include in that the new, the, the new systems where you listen to books being read. It's no dramatic reduction in, in that way. Uh, writing has become an activity that is much more frequent now. You write all kinds of messages every day uh, with, or in various forms from short <coughs> messages to, to longer messages. Uh, so in general, you can say that the, the picture that this uh, sort of uh, the internet serves as a drug to young people and when they get passive is not entirely correct because many traditional uh, media like television was much more of a passive activity. Here it's more active forms of interaction, writing, drawing, designing. There's actually data in the Swedish report that I said which shows that design activities are very important for, for young people when they use the internet and inter interact with other with fellows. Um, so, uh, what we see here, and now return to the more developmental perspective, is that the, uh, a mind such as ours, a hybrid mind then, which is not enclosed in itself, it develops through the interconnectedness with the world and the, the changes in symbolic technologies. We cannot say no to this. We cannot say that this is, I'm not going to do that. And we are not going to do this in this country. This is uh, happening. And we participate in communities. Very many will be virtual. So you have a greater range of opportunities for, for learning and participation. Uh, we learn through engagement in practices of this kind, mediated, rather than from mere instruction. That is the traditional kind of learning. And we learn through co-construction of knowledge with others. That is, we see what we see emerging are then cultures of collaboration and young generations being very adept, very apt to collaborate with others uh, in various types of activities. So we see a transformation of learning, and this is the point, the title of my uh, talk. I should say that there is a, I should also mention that there is a technological background to this change. The fact that we have these figures that student, that young students can, uh, can engage in these types of activities has a technological explanation. It has to do with the tablet and the uh, internet, which is uh, about 25 years old as a general facility that we can make use of. Uh, the touch screen is a very important element of this because the touch screen allows you to circumvent the alphabet. You can press an app. You don't have to write uh, into it. And you have constant co connectivity. to these tools over time. And uh, there's also a very important trans change in the sense that we have 
these tools have become more valid. We carry them without opening them or use them anymore. And this is the problem of President Macron is trying to deal with by banning them from, uh, from schools. So we are still struggling with the image, the version of learning that was characteristic of print technology. And we are trying to accommodate to what it is we need to learn and know in a digital way. And this is what, what very much of the discussion uh, we hear is about. Uh, we master very complex activities now, as these children do, without understanding how this works. They don't understand the sequential step. They can use the tab tablets with a high level of expertise, but they have no knowledge about how they work. Technology largely functions as a black box for us. We know what we put in and we know what we get out, but we have very little understanding often what is embedded in this processing. And we don't need to have it. We cannot unpack all of that. Uh, we increasingly learn from the complex to the elementary. So we can do complex activities, but we do not know how they are designed. We don't know what they are based on. We operate at a certain level. And we understand as part of practices, we do not necessarily understand in the traditional way of hierarchically organized knowledge, such as we have in the disciplines. <coughs> we understand that as users, as, as uh, involved in the technology and we can become very very expert at using many of these tools without knowing how they operate at the technical level uh, so we see now and this is my argument to finish with that we are moving into a new metaphor new views of, of uh, learning first of all it's uh, we are still struggling with this problem that we have this view of knowledge as, as localized within the individual uh, that is a uh, something that is very difficult to, to defend any longer. It's clearly very much an interactive uh, phenomenon uh, to learn something and to engage with other people, to extend our experiences by interacting with other people. And since the uh, technology, since the digital technology is so fantastic at documenting things, you know, we, it's very easy to document things. For instance, we are recording this now on the, on the streets of London. There are thousands of video cameras running, documenting everything that's happening. Uh, the interest is not so much in if we can reproduce what is already given, but the, the interest, what we now begin to count as learning, is more in the performative. So what can you, uh, what can you do if you know something? What, if I know something, what can I do? What is the consequence of that? So, as re reflected in my title, learning becomes more a design. I know something if I can do uh, something. And I also know and learn and develop through participating in these communities, from learning to contribute, from being a member, from looking at things from the inside. And from my own experience, uh, I would like to say that I, I've, I've seen this very clearly. I read a lot of reviews that people write of scientific articles when they evaluate them. Now previously, the, the people would always check, or generally check, I should say, not always check. Has this study been done according to all the rules of the game? Has the is the sample clear, uh, clear and is everything analytical and terms clear? Is the outcome uh, sort of documented in a, in, a, in a reasonable and transparent way? People still do that, but they often have a question ahead of that, on top of that. And that question is, so what is new? So if I read this article, 
what have you found out that I will find work easy? And this is the, I think, a sign of this new mentality of learning as design. If I read this article, what, what will I learn? What will be the outcome of, of that? And the expectation is that it's not a simple rep uh, repetition or it's not just something that is factual, so to say, but it has an added value. It tells me something. It changes my way of, of looking at things or perceiving the world. And this is what I mean by learning is design. We use the information we have in order to design uh, knowledge or information or artifacts or whatever that allows. So this is my projection that we are now in this transformation from a reproductive perspective to a more performative and design-oriented perspective. But of course there are institutional conflicts and debates and discussions about this and what it means to move in that uh, uh, direction. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you so much, Roger, for your very, very insightful presentation for weaving within one hour mind, culture, technologies, everything together and very nicely weaving without losing even a single string. So now we have some time for questions. Not much, but still approximately so 10 we minutes. Started late. We started 10 minutes. So yeah, so late. And I see that you have been raising your hand. Please go ahead. Uh, may I ask to switch on that microphone? Yeah, yeah our, our cognitive habits are not yet adapted yeah. to those technologies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Thank you. Thank you. is a, a general dimension of that is what uh, control adults have over children's consumption of any new internet. And uh, that, that is a big question uh, per se. Uh, I mean, there are ways of uh, limiting people's access to certain sites and so on. When children get a bit older, they know how to get around that and so on. But this is the, uh, I mean, I, I there's a power in, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, uh, to, to be, you know, to say if there is a power in these technologies, uh, there will be backsides to it, of course. But if you have free access to information, there will be the kinds of problems you are referring to. But of course, we have to react to that by, you know, imposing strategies for, for engaging with these uh, 
to be cancelled or so that they will get discriminated. Parents have to be made aware, and schools and preschools have to be made aware, and so on. Right? But this was exactly the same argument that was made in the 18th and 19th century when books were, were circulated. So what about this now? People will read all these things in novels, and they will read communist books in the 19th century, and this will be a disaster as well. So it's, it's, uh, none of that has been... Uh, been, uh, happening, but of course there are costs, there is uh, elements and so on, but I don't think Peter Thiel was watching <coughs> the economic Olympic problem uh, at present, uh, but there are, I, I recognize the side you have, but if they're not, uh, I mean the response to that must be that we develop strategies so, so that we, uh, so that children become responsible users and that they are understand ethics of communication and so on. I mean, I, Another dimension of what I've been talking to kids is when children already at the age of six and seven begin to write in social media, which is great because uh, they may write things that, that are not appropriate and so on, simply because of the media. They don't think about it. They write that you are uh, an idiot or something. Uh, and that's what adults do as well, by the way. So we have a whole <laughs> tradition here to, to uh, a whole task here to educate people to relate to the technology in a manner so that it becomes productive, the ethics of communication. And, so and that will be a giant task for schools in the future. And it already is, and for preschools and so on. But we cannot, uh, you know, there will be mistakes and there will be problems, but we, there's no way in which we can uh, stop this project. Uh, in a, I mean, we can say that, okay, we're not going to use that. The problem with this technology is that it exists at home and in school. It is in both places. And we have been involved in, in uh, projects in the US, for instance, in California. And it's a huge problem because the Californian students, aged 12 to 14, are not allowed to go on the internet in school because parents have been complaining. But of course, at home, they have internet access and what else. So we can try to have those kinds of restrictions. Personally, I don't think that is a viable route. But we have the, the, those uh, strategies have been, have been introduced. In, in In terms of, of uh, people well, the internet. I, I can't. Uh, I, can, I can talk for the Nordic countries. And internet use is, is uh, almost a hundred percent. The fastest growing group is actually people past the age of eighty. Now, that's been the only group which has been lagging behind, but they are coming up. So this is this is already a fact, and it, it is, uh, you know, as I said, it, it is it is. Uh, if you if you want if you want to do studies, you would have to look at what they are doing because the access to these kinds of resources is now going way beyond, and it's actually part of the Swedish social welfare system that you are, if you don't have it, if you are out of work and you live on social support, the internet connection is paid for by the Swedish authorities. <laughs> That happened about 15 years ago when they decided that we can't live in this country without being on the internet. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you very much for the very inspiring talk. Um, to, what is your recommendation for uh, young teachers entering uh, schools these days in, um, in order to cope with, with the new challenges? Well, 
I mean, this is, uh, <clears throat> when, when we, as I said, the, the schools of English are institutions, there are curricula and there are ideas about what to teach. So the question is, the general question is, how do we marry these resources with the ambitions we have in schools? Just because you put a tablet in, in, in the hands of a six, seven-year-old or a 15-year-old doesn't make it into an educational activity. But that was the same with books. Just because they had a book in front of them, it wasn't educational necessarily. So the, the big issue is how we uh, integrate this into the activities and how do we, we, we uh, sort of begin to see the ways in which this can be made productive. So for instance, uh, this is much easier in Sweden in preschools than in uh, primary and, and secondary school because in preschools the curriculum is much broader. You can shift between activities. You can sing and then you can play games and then you can do something else. In, in the regular school system there are much more restrictions. There are subjects and, and uh, there is discipline and so on. But of course we much, must make space for this because this is the, the environment we live in. People must be digitally literate, they must develop the ethics of communication and so on. And uh, so it, it's rather those kinds of things. I think this idea that we had that uh, educational technology would solve educational problems is, is mistaken. It changes the nature of education. It changes the, what people can do and, uh, and create spaces for, for uh, learning that are different from what they had before. One thing we have to do is that we have to develop the assessment systems to adapt to this. If you look at the many of the international comparisons, schools is a very traditional curriculum, for instance, but um, countries that have implemented IT lose out on those comparisons because children are adapted to a totally different situation. So I think this is a big issue, but it, it is the issue we are struggling with. And, and, uh, for instance, in, in, uh, in, in several countries now, all uh, students uh, at uh, secondary and upper secondary school are equipped with computers and are expected to work with then you get some of these uh, affordances for free because it becomes the natural way of, of working. Oliver, my question. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, very stimulating talk. My question would be, or actually the observation that I can make looking at uh, what, what you're presenting is that it's very much talking about technology as a tool being used by humans to communicate with humans. So my question is whether in your research you looked into the role of artificial intelligence or predictive technologies and their use in education and what implications that might have in terms of human development. Yeah, that, that is, uh, I mean, the, the whole uh, thing of art, artificial intelligence, I mean, the general pattern behind this is that we are living in designed world, more and more in a world where we operate in with tools that are designed for specific purposes and we manage to integrate uh, functions and, and uh, aspects of those which make them uh, functional. So I think that the, there, there will be no end to this. The, the trick is that education is, uh, is not production. Education is different. Education has multiple goals and uh, education should not be a smoothly running machine that things are done as efficiently as possible. In education, you make mistakes. You uh, have some people need a lot of time to learn things. Other people do it very quickly. And to what extent we can incorporate uh, 
very general uh, sort of technical systems into that is a big issue because it is, after all, uh, it will be, will continue to be very much an, an oral traditional activity. But if we incorporate some of these elements, I think that for some aspects of education, some types of learning, uh, uh, that those systems will be very important. For instance, you can build virtual environments where you can learn all kinds of things uh, more efficiently, both science but also language and other things. And, and so I think there will be a role to play for that. But we have to consider that uh, education is the biggest activity in our societies. And, and for instance, in my country, which is a small country, we tend already to be have in the, in the primary, secondary, upper secondary school, about 200,000 teachers. And they have to be on board. We had lots of development of uh, technological support for education where teachers simply said, well, this is not my problem. <laughs> so we have to have this coordination where teachers are on board and being supported. And actually, I think we have lost that credibility uh, in large groups of teachers because of the promises that have been made in the past about the problems that technology would solve. So we have to consider this, that we have to have them on board, we have to have user perspectives, and that the teachers are the, uh, if they see a point in using these systems, then it's the real uh, something to work with. If they don't see the point, it's not really to work with. It also has to do with the autonomy and the uh, role of the teacher. It is really teacher autonomous. If they don't want to do something, they don't do it. It's not centralized in the sense that it is in the UK, for instance. So you have to have them on board. You have to be enthused and, and uh, have to prove that this is something for me, or for us, rather, in the school. Yeah, I guess my, my question is like a follow-up to that question. Um, have you looked at new technologies where it's like a dialogue, where you interact with the computer, like with Alexa, Siri, and that? And the reason I ask is in the context of you had text and it changed the way we teach, the way we learn. Now it's in a way, in a strange kind of way, we're going back to oral tradition where you actually talk to the machine, you don't read the book. And and I guess from an education point of view, could this be a return to the, the Socratic method where you teach students not the facts because they're, they're all available, but to, how to ask questions. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, think, I think that understand your question, but uh, uh, and I think there are elements, there are situations where these Socratic dialogical methods are used and will be used, and I, I think education is very much a dialogical form. But I don't think we have to, uh, I mean you said book, but I will say text, which is the more generic term. And text will be the occupation of the education system, because we have so much of our knowledge invested in texts. If we were to replace that or try to sidestep that, we would lose much of our, our quality memory. And the role of texts, even though we have this multimodal development, is not weakened. For instance, if you look at scientific publications and so on, there's an enormous expansion of uh, scientific products, books and texts and journals and so on. So the text is a very generic element. And very much the point of our educational systems is to adapt people to text, to help them to uh, understand and read diverse ranges of text and be able to operate on them. But 
I mean, there will be pockets of activities where this dialogue, they might very well take place around texts in that case. So that's why I wanted to. might be a quick answer. Um, within the research, does the research extend to uh, the impact or the development of the student or you know, their, their learning capacity, their mental development, or perhaps in a different research program? Well, um, if you look at these young people that I took as, took as example, I, I, I would say that what these figures indicate is a sign of their mental development. The fact that you as a two-year-old can operate in this way is, is, I mean, I have this, if you look at developmental psychology generally, it studies the individuals isolated from all these changes. The idea that there is a core and a kernel, which is the real individual. But the idea here is more to show that when you have, when, when with these technologies, when they become part of children's lives, children develop change they become familiar with things that children didn't learn until they were seven or eight years ago before so it's very difficult to keep the individual and the technologies apart from individuals uh, because they are so interwoven so connected uh, to each other and if you look at the history again which i always do uh, um, you'll see that many of the things that uh, very, very young children can do nowadays. Adults couldn't do 150 or 200 years ago. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a system which is, is interconnected where the knowledge and values and uh, uh, skills of individuals are connected to these uh, technologies. So, so it's, for me, it's very hard to separate that and say, what, what is this individual? If he, did, he or she didn't live in this world, I don't know what they would be like. Because they're so coloured and so, you know, um, their development is so much contingent on the fact that they're growing up in this kind of an age and have access to these resources. Can, can you, you say that again? Repeat it again? Yes. Um, do you think it speaks more for the ability for people to adapt to the surroundings or the ability for people to develop technology that is easily adaptable to? Yeah. I think it's both ways. I think it's, uh, I, think it's uh, uh, I mean, if you look at many of these changes, uh, for instance, what I, Bruno Latour used this term black box. I mean, some technologies are so invisible to us and then they become successful. I don't have to interact with this computer as a technical artifact. I can write on it and it, it speaks back to me with, with uh, written text and so on. And then I adapt to that and it becomes sort of, uh, from the designer's point of view, <coughs> you have an interest in making the technology transparent if you want people to use it, even on a broad scale. I mean, for other design tasks, you may aim at a more special group, but if you're aiming at broad uses, you must design it in such a way that it, it is transparent. It corresponds fairly well to the natural repertoire of activities that uh, people are engaged in. And here I think you see a dramatic change. For instance, if you look at the normal interfaces that we have in, on computers and so on, young people are very familiar with those. They have a repertoire of recognition of 
of uh, all kinds of interfaces that they can interact with directly, even if they're not seen in detail. In that sense, digital literacy is different from the traditional kind of literacy. You know how to open a program, you know how to enter the information, and very quickly learn to manipulate it and manage that in ways that were relevant to you and so on. So you have a lot of sort of digital habits that you, and I think as designers have to adapt to that in, in, if they want uh, technology to be accepted on a broad basis. Thank you, thank you, Roger, and I hope you all join me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.